Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. We're going to continue today in our series on Colossians. Um, But before we do that, I've been reflecting a lot on this past Friday and what what it was, what it, what it meant to me, what it meant to our church, and kind of re- reiterating and reflecting on things that I observed during the meeting. It's, it's really fun when you get to minister in a, in a service like that where the presence of the Lord is really strong and you're like ministering to individual people. There's so many things that you take away from that. You, you're almost, because it's such a it's such a Holy Spirit-empowered service. It's such a Holy Spirit-empowered environment that, it, 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 by and large, as, as a minister, you kind of get to step outside yourself in a way and observe what's happening. It's weird. I don't know how to describe that fully. But um, what I do know is that I'm always making observations and mental notes as I'm ministering to people. And one of the things that I thought of and that I spent some time yesterday and this morning reflecting on is the, uh, how significant hunger is in the life of a believer. It's so dynamically significant in your life and in my life that we be hungry for the things of God. And if there's one thing that I could, if I, if I had the ability, how many of you have ever seen uh, uh, like a like a turkey baster or one of these kind of food infusers, you know, that you stick in a big roast and you squeeze a bunch of garlic into the roaster. You know what I'm talking about, one of these big food infuser things? If there was something that I could infuse into our generation, it would be hunger for God. If I had the ability, and I don't because it's a personal decision, it's a personal decision for each of us, but if I had the ability to force you to do something, in the name of Jesus, it would be, I would force you to be hungry for God. I would absolutely infuse you with the, with the hunger and the passion for the things of God. Because when, when I'm ministering or when anybody's ministering, if I come up to a person who's hungry, it's the easiest thing to pray for them, to hear a word from God for them. To, to have my heart stirred up, and then if I stand in front of somebody that's just checking it out, that doesn't really know, and they're like, we'll see if this works, we'll see if the preacher's on today, see if he's got any juice today, we'll see, I'm going to test the water. It is one of the most difficult things in the world to try to crank up something significant for that person. You're doing it completely on your faith, because their faith's not involved at all. And one of the things that I distinctly notice, and I think I said this to Perry and Tim and I were talking this morning as we were setting up, when I'm, standing, when I'm trying to minister to somebody who's not hungry, it's so hard to turn it on. When I'm ministering to somebody who is hungry, it's so hard to turn it off. It's absolutely, it's absolutely effortless to minister to hungry people. What you you don't realize is that when you and I are hungry for the things of God, we our hunger, get this please, our hunger creates a demand of God. Our hunger creates a demand for a supply that only God has. And if we would ever learn to check our mind at the door and check our responsibilities at the door and leave everything at the door when we come into church, we'd actually get something from God. Church would stop being a religious exercise. You wouldn't no longer be bored with Christianity if you would learn to get hungry for the things of God. Now here's what I learned. Here's what I learned. You can't be hungry without being vulnerable. Man, you can't be hungry without being vulnerable. I often, I've prayed, I mean, I've asked the Lord this. I can't tell you how many times I've asked God this. Lord, what is the secret to hunger? What is the secret to passion? 
I realize if we, if we get passionate about the things of God, then, man, our passion will just spur us on to do things for the Lord. And, you know, you wouldn't have to twist people's arms to get them to come to Bible study. They'd be at the door 20 minutes early, be like, can I come in yet? You know? I've always heard stories about when my parents got saved in the Jesus movement in the late 70s. And, and they would tell me, you know, we would just, every night of the week we were getting together. We'd bring over the guitars and we'd just worship. Or we'd go out on the streets and, you know, witness to people that weren't saved. We'd go into the bars and we'd find people that needed Jesus. We'd get them saved right in the bar and they'd come to church the next day. They had such a hunger and I'm like, Lord, where does this passion come from? I, I got part of the answer this weekend, and I've prayed this way for years. Lord, how, how do I as a pastor help to stir up hunger in the hearts of your people? And I realize you can't be hungry without being vulnerable. One of the things that prevents people from hungering for God is an unwillingness to let their guard down and an unwillingness to be vulnerable at the presence of the Lord. If you were starving, how many of you have ever been hungry? But like, Nobody in here has ever starved, okay? We're, we live in America, but I mean, nobody's actually, my kids would be like, God, Daddy, I'm starving. No, you're not. You, you ate three and a half hours ago. You're fine. You know? But imagine you were starving. Imagine you were starving. And somebody put your favorite food in front of you. Imagine it's been months since you ate. It's been six weeks since you had a meal. And you're literally, your body is craving and crying out for food. And somebody puts the food in front of you. Do you care what people think when they watch you eat? Is anybody else's opinion factoring in to whether or not you dive in to what's put in front of you? Why? You're vulnerable. Somebody could sneak up behind you and kill you because you're so focused and so engaged on this cheeseburger because you've been starving for weeks. <laughs> you've been starving for so long and somebody just put your favorite food in front of you and you are diving in whole hog. You're going after it. And in that moment, you are so vulnerable. Somebody could come take you out. Somebody could, the, the world could be falling down around you. You wouldn't even notice. Why? Because the satiation of your body is happening. You're finally getting to dive in and taste the thing that you've longed for. And oftentimes it's our pride and our arrogance and our closedness, our inability and our unwillingness to be vulnerable before God that prevents us from sitting down at the table. Because Jesus has made everything available. He has set the table. The Bible says in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. There, there is a lot of people want their cup running over, but they don't want to sit at the table. A lot of people want to get to the, to the second verse without going through the first one. You've you got to have a seat at the table. Psalm, David said in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't see that he's good until you taste. But, no, you, but you'll never taste if you don't let your guard down. You can't preserve your dignity and pig out on Jesus at the same time. That's a tweet. <laughs> I'm telling you. You can't, you can't preserve your dignity. And be wild before the Lord. And be hungry before the Lord. The Bible says, David, David, oh man, this is not my message. But David danced before the Lord with all of his might. When the covenant came back into Jerusalem, when the, when the glory was restored to the people of God, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. He didn't care what people thought. And if you care what people think, and if you want to preserve your dignity, and if you want to hold on to you, you don't get to get any of him. And he's better. He's worth it. The juice is worth the squeeze. You've heard me say that before. The juice is worth the squeeze. It's worth whatever it costs you. So my challenge and my encouragement to you this morning is to allow your heart to be vulnerable to God. 
Open the doorway of your heart and let God enter into your life. And I promise you what will happen is that hunger will begin to well up in you. You'll develop a need for God. The reality is you need him, but you don't realize it. I need him, but I don't realize it. But when I get vulnerable to him, I begin to realize how much I need. And Christianity is the only religion that you get hungrier the more you eat. It's the only experience where the more you have is the more you want. I just, the more I have of Jesus, the more I can't get enough of Jesus. Because he's everything. He's, he's everything. Man. Hmm. It's easy to do what we need to do when we're hungry. There, there's a story in the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha is Elijah's protege. He's his prophet in training. He's next in line. And the time comes for Elijah to leave. And the, and the Bible says there's a chariot of fire, a chariot of horses that's going to come, angelic horses, and it's going to come and it's going to take Elijah away to heaven. It's one of the few people in the Bible that goes straight from earth to heaven. It only happens to a handful of people in the Bible. And Elijah knows that this is going to happen. He knows that this is going to come. And so he says to his servant, Elisha, he says, stay here. I'm going on to this city. And Elisha looks at him and he says this three times in 1 Kings. You can read it. Uh, chapter 18, maybe. 18. He says three, three times, stay here, Elisha. I'm going to this city. And Elisha says, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I will not leave you. So in other words, as long as God is God and as long as I'm breathing, I'm not going anywhere. And so he follows him to the next city. And he says it again, stay here, I'm going to go on to this next city. He says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. This happens three times. Finally, they get to the brook of Cherith and uh, Elijah the senior prophet, he takes his mantle and he slaps the water and the water parts and they go through and they see the sons of the prophets. There's 50 prophets that are there prophesying and, and this amazing thing happens. The prophets turn to Elisha, little, little E, and they say, it's, they're confusing, the names are really similar. They say to little E, they say, don't you know your master will be taken from you today? He says, hush, be quiet. Yes, I know. I'm, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I'm not going to leave him. And so as they're coming through the water, Elijah turns to Elisha, big E, says to little E, ask me anything. What do you want? And he says, I want a double portion of your anointing. Let a double portion of your spirit rest upon me. And Elijah looks at him and says, you have asked a hard thing. And I often wondered, why would he say you've asked a hard thing? And here's the deal. It's a hard thing because Elijah, Big E, couldn't give Little E twice what he had. That'd be like, you have one car, and, I, and you tell me, what do, I, what do I want? You know, you ask me, what do you want? And I say, I want both your cars. We'll say, well, I got one car. I can only give you what I have. I can't give you twice what I have. So Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. He says, nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken, you shall have the thing that your heart desires. So in other words, if you see me when that chariot of fire comes to get me, then you'll get what you want. What is the significance of that? The significance is that little E was so hungry for God that he was willing, number one, to follow big E wherever he went. I'm not going to stay in this city. I'm going to follow you. Right? The second thing is that in order for him to get what he desired... God would have to intervene. Elijah couldn't give Elisha twice what he had. But he said, if you see me when I go, in other words, if you're present when the Spirit of God manifests, you'll get what you want. Because I'll give you what I got, and then God will give you what only he can give. 
And it was Elisha's hunger that caused him to receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Do you know that if from that moment through the rest of second, first and second Kings, Elisha becomes the greater prophet and he does twice the miracles, raises twice the people from the dead, does twice the works as what Elijah did. He got exactly what he wanted because he hungered for something only God could provide. If you're here to hear my words, don't don't do that if you're here listen for what only he can provide Sean will tell you our, our dean of our Bible school used to say this all the time it's not important what I say what's important is what the Holy Spirit says to you about what I say I mean be hungry for the word be ready for the word but be listening on the inside that's where revelation happens that's where God gives what only God can give but you got to be vulnerable Amen. you got to be vulnerable. We can't be passive about the things of God. We'll never get anywhere that way. Amen. Well, glory to God anyway. <sighs> I burned about the first 10 or 12 minutes off my sermon, so I'm going to have to shorten it up. We're in a series about the book of Colossians. Um, we started last week to talk about Colossians, to talk about this letter of Paul to this tiny, tiny, insignificant church, seemingly insignificant church in Asia Minor, the area known as the Lycine Valley. I I talked at at length about it last week. You can go listen to the podcast online if you missed last week, and you'll get to get caught up to speed on some of the details of this Colossian church. Man. Hmm. You know, forget Colossians. Uh, Give me a water bottle. Forget Colossians. We can come back to Colossians next week. Everything you need is in the presence of God. And everything you need is in the Word of God. And if you'll live in his presence, and if you'll live in his word, and if you'll meditate on his goodness, every need that you have will be met every single time. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should deceive. He's not going to deceive us. He's not going to lie to us. If he says that hunger gets the job done, then hunger gets the job done because he said it. I don't have to have him prove it to me in order to believe I don't have to have him. He's God. Why would I make him prove himself? If he said it, then I have to believe it. Why? Because he is God. I don't get to, to, you know, poke the bear and say, okay, I'm going to poke you until you do something. I don't get to, you know, prove it to me, Lord. He's God. Who do you think he is? What do you think this is? He's God. (laughs) You know, I think about, yes, Lord, thank you. I think about Zechariah and Mary. Do y'all remember Zechariah and Mary? They ask in the book of Luke almost identical questions. Almost identical questions. How can this be? Zechariah, the angel of the Lord Gabriel, visits Zechariah first, then he visits Mary. Same angel, very similar messages. Zechariah, you're going to have a baby. Zechariah's like, man, that ship sailed a long time ago. That ain't going to happen. His heart is filled with doubt. Hmm, yes, sir. His heart is filled with doubt. Remind me to go to Genesis chapter 3. That's your job. Um, his heart is filled with doubt. He says, how, can it, how is that going to happen? In other words, prove it. Prove it. I don't know about you, but if an angel showed up in my bedroom, not to, I mean, let me back up. If the angel Gabriel showed up in my bedroom... 
I mean, he's got to be 15 feet tall. He's, I mean, he's, he's an archangel. He's one, of the most, he's one of the most impressive angels in all of Scripture. And he is the angelic messenger of God throughout all the Bible. Anytime God wanted to speak to man before Jesus, he did it through either a prophet or he did it through an angel. And Gabriel was typically that angel. And so here's Gabriel at the foot of your bed. I just came from heaven to deliver a message. I don't know about you. I'd be like, okay. Yes, sir. But Zachariah, how can that be? No, come on, give me a break. I'm going to have a baby. What happens? The Bible says the Lord stopped Zechariah's mouth. He removed speech. He removed his ability to speak. I, the Bible doesn't say this, but in reading into the text and studying why, you want to know why I believe that that happened? Is so that Zechariah couldn't screw it up. You know, if you, if, you, if you don't want to mess up God's plan for your life, just stop talking negatively about the plan of God. <laughs> I believe that Zechariah wasn't allowed to talk because if he would have talked and kept saying, that'll never happen, that'll never happen, that'll never happen, that'll never happen, the plan of God would have been thwarted and God would have had to do something else. Tell your neighbor, watch your mouth. Yeah, yeah, Amen. Don't thwart the plan of God for your life with your own words. Ooh, man. I hope this is being recorded. I think it, I think it is, yeah. Praise God. <laughs> so he asks this doubt-filled, unbelief-filled question. How's that going to happen? Yet a chapter later, the same angel shows up to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. That which is going to be born in you is, shall be called the Son of the Most High. And he begins to prophesy to Mary about the coming of Jesus. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you, Mary. And that which is going to be born in you shall be called the Son of God. And she asks almost an identical question. But the difference between Zechariah and between Mary is that Zechariah asks with unbelief and Mary asks with wonder. How can this be since I don't know a man? How, Lord? Oh, God, would you show me how you're going to bring that to pass? Can you give me some insight into how that, I've never known a man. I've never, I don't, I don't, I'm not married. I don't have a, a, I don't have a natural way of bringing that word to pass in my life. So how is it going to happen? Will you show me? And he, he says, that which will be born in you shall be called the son of the most high. There's a difference between unbelief and wonder. There's a difference between religion and childlike faith. <laughs> childlike faith will embrace the impossible just so that it can watch how it unfolds. Oh, yeah, Lord, absolutely. Yeah, show me. Yeah, I'm watching. I'm here. Show it to me, Lord. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Religion will stop that from ever even initiating. Religion will kill the seed of faith before it has time to be cultivated and to grow. But childlike faith will just embrace the impossible just to see how it's going to pan out. Oh, yeah. Give me a bucket of popcorn so I can watch God be God. Which one do you want to be? I mean, pick. You want to be Zechariah or you want to be Mary? Hmm.
Oh, I know. I'm going there. <laughs> Just trying to think of how many stops I need to make on the way to Genesis 3. Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Hallelujah. Feels good in the house of God this morning. Um, an interesting thing happens to Mary. I don't want to take too much time on this, but it's good. Interesting thing happens to Mary after she receives the word of the Lord. The Bible says later on, I think it's the end of chapter 2 in, in the book of Luke, that uh, through, from that moment all the way through the, the life of Jesus, the Bible says Mary pondered these things in her heart. So what she did is she kept, she kept pondering and reminding herself and reiterating to herself the words that God had spoken. You see, sometimes we try to bring the word of God to pass instead of just meditating on the word of God, which actually opens the door for him to bring it to pass in our life. You see, so if, if, you'll, if you'll ever just take your hands off the wheel for long enough to God, for God to work in your life by pondering the things that he has said to you over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, five years later the thing will happen and you'll go, oh, ha, I remember when he said that. That's how prophecy works, by the way. If you ever wondered how prophecy works, we had an old man um, named Edgar Parkins who was a spiritual father to my dad. He started one of the biggest, one of the biggest churches in, to this day in Africa, in the nation of Nigeria. And um, he would say to my father all the time, prophecy is not to tell the future, it's to uh, confirm the present it's not to tell the future. God's not in the fortune-telling business. God's in the promise-making, promise-keeping business. And so prophecy is never to, to, you know, to just tell the future. It's to confirm the present, meaning this. The Lord will speak something that will seem so ridiculous to your mind, but if you'll embrace it with faith and just follow him, there'll be a moment in time when that word comes to pass. And then when it comes to pass, the, that moment will be confirmed to your heart. This is what the Lord told me about. That's how prophecy really works. My father, when he was first saved a year, two years maybe old in the Lord, somebody prophesied to him, said, you'll be a prophet to the nations. He said, you're going to travel to the nations and speak the word of God all over the world. And he's like, okay, what do I do? Should I get a plane ticket or should I pack my bag? Where should I go? Just so I pick something on the map and try to figure it out? And he just put that word away. He did like Mary. He pondered it in his heart. And, and what he did is as he pondered it in his heart, it began to grow unseen in him. Like a seed buried in the ground. You can't see the roots being developed, but they're, they're being developed. And 20 years later, he was in Africa, in Uganda, standing on a stage. There was several thousand pastors and leaders, and he was sitting actually in a row of chairs off to the side, getting ready to step up and preach to all these leaders. And as he's getting ready to step forward, they're announcing his name. He's walking. The Holy Spirit says, do you remember the day I told you you would be a prophet to the nations? He says, this is the beginning of that word. It was 20 years later he said he could hardly preach and he started crying will you be willing to ponder what the Lord drops in your heart will you be willing to be like Mary and be vulnerable and say not my will but thy will be done can you show me Lord how can this thing happen since I haven't known a man. But too many times our pride gets in the way of that. Stops us from believing. If the, if the, if the enemy can insert doubt into the picture, then he will. And here's the deal. If you tolerate the doubt, it will grow. Just like if you tolerate a weed in your garden, the weed will grow. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3 says, don't turn there, just listen. 
Genesis chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. We may continue in that verse in just a minute, perhaps. This is one of the most interesting passages of Scripture to me, and I always come back to it because there's, there's a, a law of biblical interpretation called the law of first mention. So it says that anytime you see something happen first, in, for the first time in the Bible, you need to pay attention. And so being that this is the third chapter of the book of Genesis, there's a lot of firsts in the first book of the Bible, right? This is the first time sin gets introduced to humanity. It's the first time fear gets introduced to humanity. It's the first time shame is felt by anybody. And there is a trickle-down effect that you can watch in the first five or six verses of what we just read. The serpent's more cunning than any beast of the field, and he comes to Eve and begins to talk to her. Something powerful happens in our lives when we learn to discern the voice of God and when we learn to discern the voice of the enemy. Very, very significant day in the life of a Christian when they want, number one, discern the voice of the Lord, and number two, discern the voice of the enemy. Because both voices will, in, will influence your thoughts and will influence your heart. And so you need to know the difference between when God is speaking to you and when the devil's talking. Now, how can I know the difference? Well, one is the truth and the other is a lie, right? More on that in a moment. So the, so the devil's talking here. He says, has God said? Actually, he says, has God indeed said? See that? Has God indeed said? It's interesting because the word indeed there is, is, how do I say this, Lord? The word indeed helps us to understand the deception in the, in the enemy's mouth. He didn't just say, has God said? He says, has God indeed said? Let me put it to you this way. I know you think you heard God, but is that really what he said? I know you think you heard God speak to you, but are you sure? How, how can you be sure? How can you be sure? You see, so many people want to be sure before they trust. So many people want to be Zechariah. How can I be sure that I'm going to have a baby? Again, it's God. He's talking. That should be the only criteria you need to believe. It came out of his mouth into your heart. That settles it. We used to say, you know, we grew up in, in church and they used to say to us all the time, the word of God says it, I believe it, that settles it. My father changed that up on me when I was about 
15 years old. He says, instead of saying, God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it. How about, God's word says it, that settles it. Whether or not you believe it is up to you. But here's the deal. If he said it, case closed. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Thy word, O Lord, is forever settled in heaven. His word is forever established in heaven. And so the only thing the enemy can do in your life is to unseat your settledness about the settledness of God's word. That's the only weapon he has. Why do I know that? Because the law of first mention teaches me that if I'm going to interpret Scripture properly, I need to go back to the first time something happened and study it to understand how it happened. How did God, or excuse me, how did E did the, the enemy get in Eve's head? He said, oh, hey, you're fast. He said, has God indeed said? Can you really be confident in what God has said? He couldn't, he couldn't just say, has God really said? Because Eve would have been like, yeah, God said. We all heard it. We were all here in the garden. Ask some of the other animals. They heard it. They heard it too. Adam was here. Adam, don't you remember? Didn't God say? Yeah, of course. Yeah, God said. No, he had to introduce this, this question laced with doubt. And the intention is never to get you to stay at doubt. There's always something a little further. Let's keep watching, or let's keep reading. I don't even know what day it is. <sighs> Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, tree of the, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The first question was laced in doubt. It was just enough to unsettle Eve's heart so that he could tee her up for the full-out lie. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. That's an outright lie. Right? I mean, you go back to chapter 2 when God creates them and he says, this tree is off limits. Don't touch it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall die. The Hebrew says, for in the day you eat of it, in dying, you shall die. It's very strong in the Hebrew. God was not mincing words. Don't eat this fruit off this one tree. You can have, I mean, think about this. There was thousands of trees in the Garden of Eden. Every fruit and vegetable and tasty snack under the sun was available to them 24 hours a day. All they had to do was receive it. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. I love Revelation. I love the spirit of wisdom in Revelation. They could take advantage of everything God provided without restriction at any time. The one thing they could not do was entertain doubt and unbelief. God gave them one tree. And the reason he gave them one tree was so that they would learn how to, how to push against unbelief. Because when unbelief comes, it will unseat your relationship with God. It will remove the glory of God from your life. It will make you feel like you're naked. Just swimming in the river here, folks. Come, join. The water's good. The thing God wanted to give them, he didn't want robots. He didn't want people that didn't have options. God will always give you options. Here's the two options, him or not him. Those are the only two options. But he always gives you the choice. And he, he gave them, listen, you can take advantage of any of God's promises to your heart's content all you want. The only thing you can't do is entertain doubt and entertain unbelief. There's got to be that one tree in the middle of the garden that you're not allowed to touch. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It has to do with your mind being renewed so that, oh man, there's so much here. It has to do with your mind being renewed so that you learn not to entertain doubt when doubt comes. 
Because when doubt comes and gets a chance to reproduce, it, beca- it grows into a lie and it grows into unbelief. And then what happens way down the road is you no longer can discern between what's right and what's wrong. That's why in the last days, Paul tells Timothy, there's going to be people who call evil good and good evil because they absolutely don't know how to discern the difference anymore because they've been entertaining doubt and unbelief for so long and it's permeated their heart, it's permeated their soul, and now they can't even see good when it comes. They can't recognize evil when it comes and everything just becomes gray. Verse 4, he says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Again, this kind of language points to the devil's intention. He starts with a question, he ends with a lie. How's the devil going to work on your mind and work on your thinking? He's going to do the exact same thing. This is the only trick in his book. I mean, you want to look at the devil's playbook? It's one page. He's got one option, one plan. Insert a question laced with doubt, get him to bite on the doubt, and then let the doubt mature into unbelief by way of a lie. Well, I don't know. Did God really, did God indeed say that? I know I heard him. I know I saw it in the pages of Scripture. It's spelled out. There's no way I could misinterpret, you know, I am the God that heals thee. Remember we were talking about that verse Exodus 15, 26, we're talking about that on Friday night. I mean, the Bible says, I am the God that heals thee. It's right there in Scripture. I know that's what it says, but is that what it really says? So you bite down on the, on the doubt-laced question. This is what Zechariah did. This is what Zechariah did. So you bite down on the doubt-laced question and then it stays in your heart for a while and it opens the door for this time, not a question, a statement, a lie. You will not surely die. Let me, let me put this to you in real practical right now terms. Let's use healing as an example. It's an easy one for people to understand. You get a pain in your body. Oh, I got a pain in my body. Oh. You have the choice in that moment to either question the word, did God really say he was my healer, or did I misinterpret that? And if you entertain that thought for just a second, man, for just a moment, the follow-up is going to be right there. You're going to feel another symptom and another pain, and that's going to confirm to you, oh, wait a minute, oh, yeah, no, no, God's not a healer. Or maybe he heals other people, but he doesn't heal me. And you're going to bite down on the lie and swallow it, hook, line, and sinker. And then what happens? What happens when you swallow a hook? You get pulled whatever direction the hook master wants you to go. You get, I mean, you get pulled against your very best intention and against your very best will. You're trying so hard to go that way, but something's pulling you this way. So what do you do? What do you do when you've swallowed doubt? What do you do when you're hooked on unbelief? You know what you do? You cry out to God. (laughs) A lot of people try to fix unbelief by themselves. You can't do it any more than a fish can get a hook out of his own mouth. You need somebody to intervene right in your situation and help you surgically remove the unbelief. Do you want to know how that happens? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, yes, Jesus. Man, it's fun to fly with no directions. 2 Timothy chapter 3. They hide Second Timothy. <laughs> what are we trying to do? We're trying to get doubt and unbelief out. We're trying to have the hook surgically removed. 
How's that going to happen? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Are you ready? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. What, is it, what does the word profitable mean in this context? It means that it's good for something. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it's good for some stuff. It'll do some stuff in you and for you. What will it do? Number one, it's profitable for doctrine. Number two, it's profitable for reproof. Stop right there. Do you know what that is? Do you know what reproof is? It is the surgical removal of doubt. It is the surgical removal. It is the hand of God coming into your situation and removing what the enemy has put there. It's, it's, uh, I'm going to give you two word correlations, two word pictures for that word reproof. Have you ever had weeds in your garden recently? <laughs> I have. All this rain, are you kidding me? Uh, what, what happens when you get weeds in your garden that are, that are growing there? If you want to plant something good in that soil, you got to go first and get the weeds out. And when you take the weeds out, you've created space to plant the healthy thing. To plant the tomato plant or the cucumber or the cabbage or whatever you're trying to grow. So in order to get the healthy thing to grow, you got to remove the unhealthy thing. you got to remove the weed. And the Bible says all scripture is given by the breath or the inspiration of God. It's the word pneumatikos in the Greek. And it means the breathing of God, the spirit of God, the wind of God. God's spirit will take his word and blow it into your spirit the same way that he breathed life into Adam. It's the exact same usage of the word. The same way God breathed himself into Adam is the way he will breathe himself into you out of his word. His word will come and it will blow the wind of God, the revelation of God into your heart. And when it does that, it is going to, by itself, without your help, remove the weeds and plant the truth. Now, that's the first word picture for this word reproof. The second is as follows. Anybody bake? Anybody bake bread? You like to bake bread? There is a term, a baker's term, called proofing. When you're baking bread, if, you're, if it's going to be good, tasty bread, you need to let it proof. Otherwise, it's going to be flatbread. You're going to have a pita instead of a baguette, right? You need to let the dough proof. What happens when the dough proofs? Perry, do we still have that bread picture? Let's give Perry a second to see if we got it. Did we delete it? It was in there a long time ago. A lot of pictures. That's fine. We'll see if, we'll see if he can find it. If he can, great. If he can't, great. When bread is proofing, the interior structure of the bread is being built. Did you ever cut into a bread and you see all the bubbles, all the bread architecture? Right? I love food, man. I just do. I love good bread. If you cut into crosswise into a bread, you can see all the little pockets and bubbles, the pockets of air that were there. What 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 why is that there? It's because the bread was allowed to proof. And as it proofed, the insides of it got established and got built up. The internal structure of the bread was built up so that when it was baked and it was cut, you can see that it's got some structure to it. This word here in 2 Timothy 3 says that the, the, the scripture of God is profitable. There you go. Look at that. Look at that. See all these little holes? What is that? That's the result of proofing. That bread was allowed to proof, and so now it looks like bread, and it's got all these nice little holes in it. The scripture is come into your life and into my life to re-proof us. The scripture of God is given by the wind and by the breath of God, and it's come so that it might re-proof me so that it re might rebuild from the inside the structure of my life. 
so that when life comes to press on me and cut me and open me up, when circumstances come to try to split my life open, if it could, what would you see? You'd see a bunch of structure that was built by the word. You can't be crushed. You can't be taken advantage of. You cannot fail when the word of God is able to reproof you from the inside out. How do you get rid of doubt? How do you, get, how do you spit the hook out once and for all? You need the word and you need the spirit. The first two, three, four words of that verse is Exactly what you need. You need the scripture given to you on the wind of the breath of God. When the enemy comes to you like he came to Eve, there's only one way out of that. There's only one way out of that situation. It's to take the word and speak the word and kill the doubt right away. Be like the wise fish who sees the bait and be like, no, 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 no. I've bit that hook before. No, not today, devil. Your life will be a meme. Not today, devil. I'm not going to bite down on that. No, has God indeed said, yes, he has. It's written in the word. He bore my infirmities and carried my sorrows. A chastisement of my peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes I was healed. Has God really said? Yes, he said in Psalms chapter 103, that, uh, oh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives my iniquities and heals all of my diseases. Has God really said? Yes, as a matter of fact, God really has said that he would take care of all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Has God really said? Yes, devil. How many? Do you not understand English? How many times I got to say it to you, devil? He has indeed said in his word we're not going to go there for the sake of time but you can look at Luke chapter 3 it's when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness he had fasted for 40 days he was hangry he wasn't even hungry he was hangry and the devil shows up says if you're the son of God Turn these stones to bread. What does Jesus do? It is written. You, do you see that if, if Eve would have understood that she could do the devil that way, she wouldn't have had to become the victim. She would not have had to become the deceived Amen. You don't have to be deceived. Let the word reproof you. Let the word come and pull out all the old doubt, all the old unbelief. Let God come with his supernatural tweezers and pull the hooks of deception out of your thinking and out of your thought life. You'll be rebuilt from the inside out. It'll be amazing. It'll be powerful. Glory to God. How many of you want that? Amen. Stand up to your feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.